It is amazing to see so many people on stage today, so many people choosing to become members. And a special shout out to the graduating seniors in high school who uh, did the senior meetings and joined just like I did a couple years ago. Awesome to see you up here as well. Uh, Jared asked me to preach on the topic of church membership, and so for some reason I chose an obscure Old Testament passage. Um, uh, so I hope I'll be able to do it. But before I read the passage, I want to start with a Facebook post, a viral Facebook post from the author Jen Hatmaker. And this is on May 30th, and it has the title, For Those of You with a Complicated Relationship with Church Right Now. In this post, she talks about her experience with church, how it's been full of ups and downs, and how ultimately she realized that God could let her watch CBS's Sunday morning show without shame. She says, Church to me right now feels like my best friends, my porch bed, my children and parents and siblings. It feels like meditation and all these leaves on my 12 pecan trees. It feels like Ben Rector on repeat. It feels like my kitchen and my table and my porch. It feels like Jesus, who never asked me to meet him anywhere but in my heart. And maybe you resonate with this post right now. Maybe you feel that your relationship with the church is complicated. That prophetic word by Melissa spoke to you. It, it related to you. You feel like church is a difficult place to be at times. And I think Jen Hatmaker is right. God can meet you there. He wants to meet you there, but he doesn't meet you in the way that she says, by essentially allowing you to call all the things that make you happy your own church. Because in the end, what's going to happen is the leaves on the pecan tree are going to wither and fall. The porch swing is going to rot. Friends may move away. Loved ones may die. If we build our lives around the things that make us happy, we're left with nothing when those things inevitably decay. But God calls us to something a lot higher and a lot deeper than that. He calls us to build his kingdom by committing to a local church. And that might seem underwhelming. You know, the, the secret to a dying world is church membership. Really? You know. But I believe that that's what the Bible says. It says that the mission of God's people is the most important thing on earth. And this passage in 2 Chronicles shows us that. So read with me, if you would, in 2 Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Dear Lord, uh, I pray right now for your spirit upon me and upon this congregation, God, that you would empower me to preach your word. And God, I thank you already for how your spirit has been at work, God, in the gifts of prophecy that we've seen. God, you are already among us, God. It is so encouraging 
to know that we're not here alone, we're here with you. So God, I pray that this sermon would be able to convict and strengthen and guide and help and that you would be with me. In your name we pray, amen. In the Hebrew Bible, the books of First and Second Chronicles are actually one book. The only reason it's split in two is because it's so long. And it's written after the exile, but it shows the heritage that the returned exiles have. Because the Israelites had been in bondage for over 50 years. For 70 years, they had been in captivity, essentially as the spoils of war. Jerusalem was sacked, the temple was destroyed, and they were taken into captivity. And so many of them died while they're in captivity. They have these promises of God, but they're dying before they get to see them happen. God's people are wasting away. They're not able to return to his land, to their land, and to worship God as they should. Until finally, they find deliverance through the decree of a pagan king, King Cyrus. After 70 long years, God begins to flex his muscles and show his power. The wait is over. God's people can return to their land and once again worship God as they should. And yet, although there's great joy, not everything is perfect. They return, but they're still under the authority of Persia, and they are going through foreign and hostile territories to a Jerusalem that's been destroyed, a temple that's been destroyed, and a land that's full of non-Israelites who are hostile to the work of God. At times, in the history of Israel and Judah, you feel a sense of identity. There's momentum, there's connection. There's connection to a people, to a land. But right now, God's people are displaced, discouraged, and disillusioned. And not even all of them came back. There's some of them who stayed. It's only a fragment, a remnant, who returned. They seem so far away from rebuilding the temple and establishing the Davidic line. But this, this moment is where Chronicles comes in. Because it recounts the story of Israel and their identity, of the wondrous works of God. It paints a glorious picture of what it means to be God's people. I can picture a returned exile reading this, and they read what we just read, the decree to return, and they participated in it. But as they're reading, it feels so long ago. The joy that they experienced as they returned feels so different from where they are now. And yet, all they would have to do to rekindle that is flip a few pages back and see the stories of God working through his people, see the stories of God's power. This entire book is inspiring the returned exiles by pointing them to the glorious history that they are playing a part in. And this same story should inspire us as well. God's faithfulness should inspire us to join his people in accomplishing his mission. We as individuals come together to join something bigger than any of us alone. Instead of being individual persons on a mission, we are a people on a mission. And I have three points that can hopefully help us to understand more about this people. First, who belongs to God's people? Second, what do God's people do? And third, why is God's work important? First, who belongs to God's people? And Cyrus actually gives us a pretty good description of this in this passage. He tells the inhabitants of Persia that whoever is among you, 
of all his people are the ones who should return to Israel. In other words, if there's anyone here who's part of God's people, then go. If you're an Israelite who's still following Yahweh, then this command is for you. And that's the beauty of church membership today. While there are certain standards to become a member, baptism, obedience to God's word, in our case, a membership class, God isn't exclusive about who his people are. He's not drawing lines based on ethnicity or gender or age or socioeconomic status or political beliefs or past life. No, all people are welcome. And some of the returning exiles in this passage, they might have been the ones who caused the exile in the first place. Their disobedience was what what motivated God to send them into exile. But now they are returning once again to be God's people in God's place under God's rule. And they didn't suddenly get showered in pixie dust and become these perfect followers of God. They're still the same people. Oftentimes they're stubborn, maybe disobedient at times. They had problems, complications, conflicted hearts, difficult relationships, hesitant attitudes. Yet God still works through them to accomplish his mission. Don't confuse being part of God's people with being perfect. God loves to use imperfect people to show his power. But it's important to stress that God's people are a people, not just a collection or a group of super spiritual individuals. And this is where the book of Chronicles, once again, is so important. Because in the book of 1 Chronicles, which again is part of this larger work, all of the first 10 chapters are genealogies. It's all names. And it's notorious for killing Bible reading plans. (laughs) But it actually plays a purpose. It has a point. Because what it's saying is it's showing who belongs to God's people. Theologian Brian E. Kelly says, Chronicles demonstrates a striking interest in the broad participation of the people in the life of the nation. Compared to the presentation in the books of Samuel and Kings, the chronicler consistently highlights the role of the people at large in laying the religious foundations of the nation. No doubt as a way of affirming that all Israel, both north and south, the laity as well as the priesthood, has a share in these institutions. The first word of First Chronicles is Adam. It starts with the first man, and it traces from him all the way to Abraham, and then from Abraham out to the 12 tribes and their descendants. If you look at these lists, they're not full of recognizable names. I don't think that the sons of Gad were household names in Israel. First Chronicles 1 to 10 is not times 100 most influential people. It's a pretty ordinary bunch. But that is the power of the church. Church membership is about the ordinary. It's about God using people who are not esteemed in the world's sight, but are esteemed in his sight. And there have been so many amazing examples of this in this church. Uh, One of the ways I've seen this is in the bridge course. People like Lang Stanley, Margie Edwards, Andy Orr, Tom Mathers, David Chung, Ivan Brown people who are content to build up the house of God, even if they're not the ones receiving all the credit, who are willing to play their part no matter what part that might be. These are the same type of people who returned from the exile, unknown to the world, but known to God. 
And God's not done numbering people. If you flip one page over in your Bibles from 2 Chronicles 36, you'll land in Ezra 1. And the first chapter of Ezra is essentially the exact same as it's the recounting of this decree of Cyrus. Chapter 2 is a list of the exiles who returned. Doesn't cover all of them, but it does give us a number for the total uh, number of returned exiles, 42,360. It's important that it doesn't say, you know, 50,000, give or take, not that important. No, God wants to know exactly who his people are. He cares personally for each one of his sheep. If you are part of God's flock, then God knows that you are part of his flock. And God cares about that because there's a difference between you saying that you're part of the flock and actually choosing to be part of the flock. There's a difference between saying that you want to return from exile and actually returning, actually numbering yourself with the returned exiles. There might be, there may have been Israelites who chose to stay behind. They got the word and they chose to stay in captivity. Maybe they just put in the pool in the hot tub and they thought, you know, I'll, I'll send an encouragement card. But God wants to know who's with him. By going up to Israel by making the arduous trek through hostile territory, leaving behind their homes, going to a place they maybe had never even been to. They are communicating, these returning exiles are communicating that God's people are their people. They are willing to practice what they preach. They're backing up their words with action. And that's exactly what all of the people on this stage were doing. They may have previously talked about how much they love the church, but now they're showing it. They're showing that they are committed to God's people. God's people are their people, and his mission is their mission. But what is this mission? That leads me to my second point. What do God's people do? If we turn to Cyrus's declaration again, the answer is to build the house of the Lord. That's the reason he's sending them back, because God has given him instructions that the house of God in Israel needs to be rebuilt. And the temple and the church today are different. God's presence is no longer contained in one building. And yet the physical presence of the church is still vital to our faith. In fact, the church in the New Testament is described as God's temple. If we start to minimize the power of gathering together, we turn to what Jen Hatmaker says and start to believe that God only asks us to meet him in our hearts. The inward is all that matters. The outward is irrelevant. But what if the way that we grow individually is in community? See, the inward life is stirred up by the outward life. I desire individual times to meet with God. I desire strong prayer life, strong devotional life. And yet if I'm looking for those things, I'm going to be strengthened to help to find them by being part of the people of God. If we are in community, then our souls will be strengthened. It can be easy to lose sight of this, though, and to let our commitment to God's mission slip. One of the reasons this happens is because our view of the church changes. It gets warped. One of those ways is it could start to center around our interests and essentially become a collection of like-minded people who all have the same preferences. Or it becomes 
a spiritual repair shop and centers around our needs where we go for a quick fix. Or it becomes a status symbol, a sign to others that you're covered, that you've got your life together. In all of these situations, the emphasis, the focus has shifted from church being about God to church being about us. Our interests, our preferences, our needs, our self-image. And while the church should have many roles, including some of those I just named, ultimately the church is an embassy for Christ. And we're the ambassadors, we're the ones representing Christ's kingdom to a dying world. And it doesn't work when only a few select believers are the ambassadors. We need everyone to buy in, to care about the mission. Jonathan Lehman writes, From the non-Christian standpoint, a local church is a voluntary association. No one has to join. From the standpoint of the Christian life, however, it's not. Once you choose Christ, you must choose his people too. It's a package deal. Choose the Father and the Son, and you have to choose the whole family, which you do through a local church. And once again, there are so many people who have exemplified this for me. Uh, over the summer, this summer, Leo Paris asked me to lead one of the men's Bible studies. And it has been an amazing experience to see men who have families and busy work schedules, busy lives, waking up at 6.30 in the morning to study God's word and to to grow from his word. People like Ev Kaberski, Matt Bechtel, Blake Stair, Tim Campbell, Brad Hoopman, and many more. They're an example to me of what it means to be a healthy church member. But even more important than what we do for the house of God is what God is doing in our midst. If you look again at 2 Chronicles 36, God's hand is all over these two verses. You see it immediately that the word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet, by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled. What promise is that? That promise is in Jeremiah 29:10, which reads, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then we hear that in order to accomplish this mission, God stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. It doesn't say that Cyrus was stirred up or that Cyrus stirred himself up. No, God stirred up his spirit. God is active. God is looking out for his people, ensuring that the remnant will prosper. And even Cyrus acknowledges this. He says, God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He knows it's not his own power. He knows that it's all in the hands of God. And it's the same with the church today. We should strive to build up the, the house of God. Yet we need to remember that ultimately, he is the one responsible for its success. And just like Rob was saying, we should be encouraged by all of these new members joining. But it's not primarily a chance to pat ourselves on the back, to congratulate ourselves for a job well done. It's primarily a chance to praise God for what he's done. Because he's the one who's working in the hearts of these people to bring them to saving faith and then to work on their hearts to bring them into the community of faith, to bring them into God's people. We have a vital role, but a role that is guided by God's hand. That leads me to my third point. Why is God's work important? 
And this is the why question. Why do I need to care? This is a big church, and it's full of many willing servants. They seem to be doing it just fine. Church membership is a level of commitment that I'm not ready to make. My guess is that if you're here thinking that to yourself, there are probably one or two misconceptions that you have about what church membership is. One of them is that church membership is just about supporting the church. In this view, all the church membership is, is it's essentially just looking for people who are strong enough and capable enough and gifted enough to keep the church from going under. Church membership is essentially a poster saying, Uncle Jared wants you. (laughs) But as we already saw in 2 Chronicles, God is the one in control. He's the active force in the building of the church. So that means that God isn't just in need of more troops. In fact, one of the greatest disasters in the history of Israel happened because David numbered the troops. He wanted to know how many people he had who could fight. And God said, no, I don't want you to be concerned with how many people you have who are mighty. I want you to be concerned with my might. That's why he had afflicted that punishment on him. God doesn't need more troops. If the church is only about the strength of its members and not about the strength of God, then God's going to inevitably humble it. In reality, church membership is as much about me helping the church as it is about the church helping me. When I became a member, I was saying, I can't do this on my own. Left to myself without the community of believers, I'm going to fall into error. I'm going to stray from the faith. I've seen people abandon the faith, and it's tragic. Oftentimes, one of the first steps on that path is distancing yourself from the church, distancing yourself from God's people. When someone rejects God's people, they are often not far from rejecting God altogether. I need other believers in my life or else I am headed for disaster. God gives us community. He gives us those other believers through his church. If you look back on your time at Covenant Fellowship, you'll probably agree with me that the church has given more to you than you've given to it. I know firsthand that my experience is not just me supporting the church, but the church supporting me and helping me as I seek to live out my faith. The other misconception is that church membership is a chore. And this can start to set in after serving the church for many years. At first, serving seems like a joy, but over time it grows dull. This is where the recent sermon series on Haggai has been so helpful. In 2 Chronicles, the people are dismissed to return back to the temple, and they do so with rejoicing. But what Haggai comes to tell them is after the work gets hard, after they abandon it, they get bogged down. Haggai says, the same God of the past is the God of the present and the future, and he hasn't forgotten you. There's a plan for the future. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. That's what he's telling them. He's telling them to take heart. Sometimes church feels like exercise. It really isn't that fun. It's kind of terrible, but in the end, it makes us feel good about ourselves. But that's the exact opposite of the people in this passage. They come back rejoicing. God wants us to rejoice as we do God's work. You may be a lifelong servant of this church, someone who was serving all the way back in the Gauntlet Center where Covenant Fellowship first started, and 
is still serving today. Thank you so much for your commitment to be a member who actively serves the people of God. I believe that God wants to show you through this passage that he hasn't forgotten you, that your name is on his lists. And just like Dan prophesied earlier, I believe there are many artists, great masters in this congregation right now. Painting masterpieces that are not going to be displayed in any museum, they're not going to be seen by others, and yet God will one day reveal the glory of your work to other believers. God values you and he sees the masterpiece that you're painting, even if someone else doesn't, even if no one else does. In Revelation 3, Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Remember that he is coming soon. God will give you the strength to continue to run the race well and to continue building up the house of the Lord. Maybe there are others of you who feel convicted. You feel like you're the one staying behind. You're the one who didn't go up with those who chose to be numbered with the returning exiles. If that's you, God is calling you to commitment. And he's calling you to take the first step in that commitment by committing to a local church. To formally commit to being a team player playing for God's team. But I think God also wants to encourage you if you're in that place today because God is not judging you if you're too late. There's no such thing as being too late. Treasures in heaven do not have compound interest where if you start late, you're never going to get enough. No, God values each one of us wherever we are, whenever we start. And if you talk to those members who've been serving for years, the titans, the pillars of the church, they would all be the first to tell you that they're serving in God's strength and that God values each of our contributions, no matter when or where that is. All of our serving is empowered by the gospel. We often don't realize how powerful the church is. I think it's because we don't realize how powerful the boss is. In the New Testament, Christ is referred to as the head of the church. This is because the church is the only institution that God has endorsed. It's the only organization in the entire world that is God's own, that belongs to him. All other organizations, even Christian ones, even great ones, they ultimately end with a person at the top. The head of Crew Campus Ministry is Steve Sellers. The head of the Gospel Coalition is Julius Kim. The head of the Voice of the Martyrs is Cole Richards. The head of the church is Jesus. The leadership structure doesn't end with a person. It goes all the way up to the Lord himself, and that's where its power comes from. It can be so easy to see the systems at place in the church and to forget that the church is at its heart a supernatural institution. In the same way that God's people are a holy people, they are a spiritual people, God's house is a spiritual house. He's the one infusing it with power. He's the one who claims ownership of it. God loves the church like we love our homes. We may travel and enjoy travel, but ultimately there's a joy and a comfort of returning home. God's house is the church. That's his home on earth. It's where he chooses to dwell. He dwells among us when we are gathered as his people. 
God's people gathering together to continue his mission through the church has a special, a unique place in God's heart. Nothing else on earth can replace God's love for the church. I want to end by coming back to Jen Hatmaker. She gave up on church in that Facebook post, but she definitely didn't give up on community. That post shows that she still longs for true and deep community. She's just now looking for it in her family, her friends, and her favorite music. And this isn't an anomaly. This is part of a trend. People today are skeptical of institutions. There's a hesitancy towards aligning yourself with a large group. Am I really going to find what I'm looking for in a big group? Is that really going to meet my needs? It's easier to choose the authentic or the customized pathway to those things than to find it in an organization. And what this comes down to is it's an issue of trust. Too often we've been ripped off by the promises of politicians, CEOs, fundraisers, snake oil salesmen, you name it. In 1987, Australia's Prime Minister Bob Hawke said that in three years, no Australian child will be living in poverty. Shockingly, this didn't happen. I wonder what his political strategist said to him afterwards. I mean, I like the enthusiasm, good optimism, but it's impossible. But it's easy for all of us to do this. We get carried away, we bite off more than we can chew, and overpromise and underdeliver. It can seem like the church is another one of those overpromising institutions. It promises that it's God's people, that it's God's own place, but is it really going to deliver on that? Well, here's the difference. Here's the difference between what Bob Hawke said and what the church says. It's that the church is backed up by Jesus. Truth himself is the one who is promising these things. The very source of all that is true and right is the one who has chosen to make the church his dwelling. And he sealed the promise with his own blood. He backed up his words by going to the cross and dying for our sins. The gospel is the proclamation that Jesus is really who he says he is. That every promise that he makes will be fulfilled. That's what Paul says in Philippians. He humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What that verse is saying is if there's any promise that Jesus could have said, well, I can't get to that one. I'm going to pass that one on. I may be overpromised on this one. I can't deliver. It would be the promise to go to the cross, to die for our sins. That's the one that he could have made an excuse for, and he didn't. He lived up to his word. He went to the cross. He endured our sufferings. He took our sufferings upon himself because he saw through it to the glory that would follow. He saw through the pain and endured our sufferings. Jesus isn't a boss who stays in the corner office all day giving orders to people he barely even knows. No, he descended from his throne and came to us. He came and took on the form of a servant. He became the image of those people who he was giving orders to, who he has control over. He's a God who's so merciful that he took on the form of a creature. And because of that, we have complete confidence in him. Complete faith in who he is and what he says. That every promise he makes, he will uphold. And so when he promises that the church is his own, that the church is his people on a mission from on high, and that it will endure to the very end, 
we know that he means that promise and he backed it up with his own blood. God doesn't call you to blindly put your faith in any organization. He calls you to put your faith in him. And as a result, to put your faith in his organization, the church. If he hasn't given up on the church yet, then neither should we. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this church that I get to be a part of. God, that I get to play a part in the people of God. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen each one here, those who have been members for a long time, those who just joined as members, those who are not yet committed to the church, God, that you would stir each of us up to return to your place, to do your work, to carry out your mission in the strength that you provide. In your name we pray, amen.